Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Simply put, when we're following our breathing, as we've been doing now for three days, and some calmness starts to emerge, mostly because as you keep following your breath, uh, the conditions that give rise to reactivity start to change, and some calmness emerges. And the best part of that is when you have a practice meaning it's ongoing, then those moments that we feel of stillness start to link up with each other. And when they link up with each other, it starts to rewire our brain, if you want to use that language, or it just starts to structure our attention in such a way where we now know what it's like to feel calmness and to feel stillness. And all that sounds great, and it is great. And it's great to feel calmness. And at the same time, this strange thing about human beings is that when you feel calm, it usually creates enough space that it allows new material to arise. And I always learn this the hard way with my wife. We go through these phases where everything's great, like everything's so smooth, we're on vacation or whatever. And then, suddenly, I realize all these new things that I want to talk to her about that's bugging me, you know. Or she does that with me. Do do you guys get this, too? And and so this is a sign of uh, health in a relationship, right? There's enough stability, enough calmness, that now, within that clarity, you can see some new habits that are worth exploring. And uh, this is really important. The benefit of being a meditator, I hope, but not always the case because we don't want to idealize it too much, is that now when you see new habits, there's less defensiveness. And there's more interest and more curiosity about this process of um, seeing what emerges as it's emerging, even if it's not what we want to see. I mean, it's never what we want to see. How can it be? Imagine if some pattern that you didn't like emerges and you were like, yeah, that's exactly what I thought was going to emerge and how it would emerge. Of course, it's never like that. 
So this brings up a really interesting issue, which I feel is uh, finally making its way, I think, into mainstream conversation, which is uh, trauma and how trauma lives in us, how trauma gets digested uh, in our somatic experience, in our emotional lives. And slowly, there's a recognition that trauma is much more widespread in our culture than we've realized. And also that there is a huge emotional cost to carrying old wounds, and that emotional cost does not just end in your body, but it has an effect in your family, it has an effect in your uh, heart, it has an effect in the heart of your community. And of course, uh, carrying around trauma has an effect in our local ecology. Because when we carry around a lot of trauma, we end up being numb to what's going on around us, how we're part of what's going on around us. And we end up making poor decisions, whether those are decisions for ourselves or decisions for other people. And it affects the background of our life really deeply because it's always affecting our relationships. And in a way, all we are is relationships. That's all we are. So um, obviously there is a lot of misunderstanding uh, about what trauma is. Um, in trauma, we tend to think that Trauma is just the painful experience that's happened to us. I think most of us, when we first hear the word trauma, that's what we think, is that some painful experience uh, has happened to us. Um, that it's a wound or a shock or, or some kind of injury. Um, but trauma, psychologically, doesn't refer to the event, per se, but rather its effect on us. This is a really important detail. So it's not the event that happened, but actually um, its effect on us. And one of the ways that I like to define trauma, I don't think this is like the clinical definition, but it's how I think about it, is trauma is an event that's happened that hasn't yet been experienced. So your sense organs have had an event happen, but you haven't yet had the experience of that event. <clears throat> so if you were to think about that more creatively, it's an event that's looking for an experience. So it's an event that's somatic. It's, it's happened through the sense organs, and it's going to try and find a way to get experienced, no matter how perverted and strange that root will be, and no matter what it takes down with it. And pain and fear that come with these kind of experiences, at whatever degree, um, are sometimes unbearable. And whether we can bear some of the symptoms of a trauma have to do with our age, our social support, um, and so many other factors. It's not just one thing. Yeah. <clears throat> I just wanted to 
don't understand that at all, that you have a somatic Okay, yeah, so well, I know that was confusing, wasn't it? Because I was just saying my definition of trauma backwards. So the first definition is there's an event that hasn't yet been experienced. I thought... That, that was the first definition. Okay. But, uh, but, then when I, but then I flipped it, and I said another way of thinking about it, which does sound a bit confusing, I guess, is that event wants to be experienced. So it's an event that's unconscious, that's looking for an experience. It, it's looking for you to experience it. But the event, is that only the effect on us? Yeah. That effect needs to be digested. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, when somebody feels pain that they don't have the skills to manage or to feel or just to kind of allow, um, they feel that their life is at risk. Um, so they'll do whatever they can to avoid going near that pain. Even though they may not even know what it is. There's just this intuition that's mostly unconscious that we just have to stay away from this territory. <clears throat> Here's the important part, which is when this happens to us, we leave the world we used to live in and we enter a completely new world. We actually inhabit a completely new body when this happens. And we enter uh, a trauma world. It's not the same world we lived in before. And because we're very efficient organisms, we get used to it really, really fast. And what happens in this new world is that your scars have tremendous power. They have tremendous power over you. Remember the veil that we talked about yesterday? Mm -hmm. That veil becomes like a hundredfold. And it becomes really hard to see clearly, to perceive, to think, to feel, because it's happening through a scarring that's necessary, like the organism does this on purpose. And so what I wanted to talk about today um, are three characteristics that show up when we enter this new trauma world because I feel like they tie in so closely to what happens at different stages of meditative practice. The first characteristic is the fear of re-traumatization, is fear. The first symptom of uh, trauma is fear, first characteristic. The second is dissociation. Trying to compartmentalize what happened to us. And the third, which, again, this might not be how clinicians talk about it, but I always kind of push this one the most because I think that if you don't deal with this third one, the other two are really hard to work with, is shame. Yes. <clears throat> so just to say it again, the first characteristic is um, fear. 
And it's a specific kind of fear. It's the fear of being re-traumatized. The second is dissociation. And the third is shame. And what's important for those of you who don't have like a psychology education necessarily is to understand that there's no conscious decision to do any of this. This happens automatically in a deeper memory than what we have access to. <clears throat> and secondly, the trauma world and the pieces that come together to create this new trauma world are not accessible to language. You can't talk your way into a solution to this scenario. It's inside your hormones, the structure of your brain, your nervous system, and the sense organs themselves. And so it changes how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world, how you feel about other people. When you can't feel um, the feelings that give rise to this trauma world, then um, you reinforce um, this trauma cycle. But you can't see it. You can't see that you're doing that. <clears throat> but before we get too far into this, what kind of experiences, uh, we should ask ourselves, um, count as trauma? So of course the first is extreme neglect, uh, war, uh, witnessing an atrocity, violence, um, sexual assault. Um, these are all forms of trauma, the ones the mainstream media talk about a lot. <clears throat> but there's another form of trauma that doesn't get acknowledged uh, in the same way, which is uh, feeling unloved or feeling inadequate uh, as a young person. Being in a caregiving environment where our caregivers could not attune to us. And the primary reason for this is likely their own trauma. Most of the time our grandparents were traumatized and that was passed on to our parents and it moves through generations with different symptoms, and I'll get to that. But I just wanted to underline that one point, that if you just think of trauma as assault or violence or whatever, you're missing a really big piece of the trauma puzzle, which is um, that our brains are relational. Your brain grows relationally, and most of that growth happens in the first 18 months. In the first 18 months, there's a lot of wiring that gets set down. And a lot of that has to do with um, uh, gazing and different forms of attunement. Of course, not just gazing, but gazing is a really good example. When you come out of the... Uh, 
vagina. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you don't necessarily come out of a vagina. Lots of people don't come out of vaginas. That's what I meant, was womb. Yeah. The sack. I was actually at a workshop recently, and there was this wonderful woman, beautiful woman, who she, she, she's Swedish, and she was trying to find the word for a vagina, and she was trying to say it, and then she just said, the exit. <laughs> And of course, you have to be at a certain stage of life to only think of it as an exit. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> okay, so. So number one, um, fear. Oh, sorry, no, you, you come out, yeah. You come out, and what's the first the first two things the baby does is, you know, trying to find um, a latch or something to latch onto. And also, um, it's really powerful how the baby will look right into the eyes of the, the caregiver. It's amazing. It's really amazing. So, um, fear. The first response uh, to being wounded is uh, fear. Um, we become really sensitive to danger, any kind of danger, and we develop this incredible radar system for um, feeling when there's a situation internally or externally or in between that's um, unsafe. And this happens again really deep in the body and the brain. And then we look at other people with some distrust, right? Like our first move is not trust. Our first move is distrust. But we don't see that. We don't see that we do that. Is this, is this making sense? This like, it's, this is really, really unconscious. <clears throat> and at the core of that stance is really a cry which is, I never want to be re-traumatized again. Hmm. Right? Like that's at the core of this distrust. Because I don't want to be close to feeling those sensations, remember, unpleasant, that I felt last time. And so what we do in order to deal with this is we become control freaks. Right? We start to control our body, our eating, our ways of speaking, our ways of holding our, our, our musculature. We control how close we get to people. We, I mean, I don't have to go through the list, but basically we try and control our environment so that we can control what we feel and what we'll allow ourselves to feel. And when that's true, you end up distorting your beliefs to match this pattern. And then you believe that it's true, that things are really like this. 
Maybe once you lost a caregiver, or they walked out on you, or couldn't attune to you, and so then you develop this unconscious belief that you're not lovable. So you don't let anybody get close because you don't ever want to risk losing someone again. And you can see how like this pattern that can get set up when you're so young gets acted out all through school, high school, um, as an adult, right? You actually never become an adult in a relationship because um, you can't let anyone get too close. That's not the only move, but I'm just giving one example. And of course, whatever move you make, uh, the point of, of being dominated by these scars is that it creates intense loneliness and separation. And then the body gets really good at maintaining that. It's like riding a bicycle. You don't remember how you got from stage to stage, but you know how to ride a bicycle. <clears throat> you develop this false self, which is just a half shell of who you really are, but you get really good at it. <clears throat> the second symptom of this trauma world is dissociation, which is part of the mammalian defense system. And it cuts us off from reality. And again, this is a spectrum, right? I think a really good example, and I'm not using uh, examples of um, like physical violence, because I, I kind of want to stay with the relational dimension just this afternoon. Some of you who have trauma training, you can fill in you know, a lot of different aspects of this. Um, but an example of, of this is when someone that we depend on at a young age can't tolerate some aspect of who we are. Whether it's uh, how we talk, um, our ambition, our sexuality, um, our anger, um, our body type, um, our ability, like how our body moves. And so we have to split off parts of ourselves, those parts of ourselves, in order to maintain a relationship with them. And because we need to maintain a relationship, it's, it's evolution, with the people close to us, because that's your world, um, you'll compartmentalize whatever you need to in order to keep that um, primary relationship. So you cut off a part of yourself, and uh, when that happens, you don't feel uh, real anymore. You feel kind of empty, not the Buddhist emptiness, but, but you don't feel real <clears throat> to yourself. And sometimes it's not just one thing we cut out, it's just maybe a spectrum of emotion. Like we just numb ourselves. And the problem with numbing is that if you numb the negative, you also end up numbing the positive. So the problem with the move towards numbing 
is that when you numb negative emotions, you end up numbing the positive emotions too. So numbing is just numbing in whatever way it appears. And then you feel less than the other humans around you. And so you start to feel like there must be something wrong with you. In other words, when you cut off your emotions, you lose the way that you connect with the world. You connect with the world through your emotions. And emotions give you so much intelligence. Has anyone here ever been in a relationship with somebody who doesn't have much emotional intelligence? Yeah. I don't mean that just like, oh yeah, my first marriage. I mean, there's also, like, there's, there's also spectrums of Asperger's, autism, where someone doesn't have access to that. And it's really, really difficult to find the resources to communicate because um, communication requires so much emotional uh, awareness. The problem is when, you're, when you don't have access to your emotions, it's really hard to make good decisions because emotional intelligence is what we use to make uh, good ethical uh, decisions. For example, if you don't feel danger accurately, or if you don't feel trust accurately, you're probably not going to make clear decisions for yourself or other people. <clears throat> Is it okay if I keep going? The third characteristic is uh, shame. And shame basically just means that fundamentally you feel uh, inadequate. Uh, it's important to distinguish between guilt uh, and shame. Uh, guilt is about feeling badly for things that you've done. And shame is when you feel badly um, for who you are. Uh, in other words, guilt is more about doing and shame is more about being. It's about feeling bad for the way that you exist. Um, it's similar to self-judgment and being critical of yourself, but it's not the same thing because it's beneath thinking. It's under thinking. And this is what I... This is the point that's really important to understand about what I'm talking about this afternoon, is it's not so cognitive. Like self-judgment's really cognitive, but shame is an attitude that's not so cognitive. And of course, shame is a passing emotion in all of us. All of us, if we're healthy, we've had a passing sense of shame. But with trauma, you can't get outside of it. In other words, you become the object of your own negativity. And then it gets reinforced. And one thing that I notice a lot about people with, again, I don't know if this is true in the literature, but 
One thing that I see a lot with people who experience shame is that um, there can, shame can give rise to uh, perfectionism, to trying to be more, more perfect. And it really poisons um, our relationship with other people because other people can't be perfect, the relationship can't be perfect, you can't be perfect. It's a bad game. And um, uh, somebody who experiences a lot of shame um, loves yoga. Or somebody who experiences a lot of perfection loves ballet. <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious, but the point being is that um, it's a game. The way the game goes is like this. You take a sponge, you clean your sink. The sink is clean, but now the sponge is dirty. So then you have to clean the sponge. Then you clean the sponge, but now the sink is dirty. You see? And for the perfectionist, they never want that to end. Because if it ended, there wouldn't be anything to perfect anymore. And then you wouldn't know who you are. So it's this game that's really, really hard to break. And it just reinforces shame. Yeah. And then, of course, the point being, relationally, you're not having real, real relationships. So... How can all this be healed, and what does this have to do with meditation? <clears throat> the first thing is that um, when you sit still, even though you think meditation is going to make you calm, it will, and it's also going to bring up a lot of uh, somatic experiences. Not just thoughts, but irritations, emotions, all kinds of stuff in your body. And if you haven't had uh, the kind of caregiving that has helped you soothe yourself, when you feel strong emotions or agitations or even just a little bit of anxiety, then when you sit, it's going to be really hard to work with what comes up. And you won't last very long because you don't know how to self-soothe, right? Because we don't know how to soothe ourselves in, in this experience. So it's really important to see how the, the systems that are created through trauma are so deeply ingrained that they're really hard to see. But the systems that were created after the event are the only thing that need healing. The event doesn't need healing. It's the systems that we created after the event which is what needs healing. Sometimes there are processes of reconciliation that happen that are really healing at political and social levels. But with or without that kind of political and social work, there is still work inside of us that needs to be healed. And you see this all the time in activist circles where they skip over the personal healing 
to try and get community or social healing. And then some of that happens, but yet there's still tremendous amount of addiction, violence, a recreation of traumatic environments. Um, and um, that kind of personal piece is missing. One could argue that it's hard to have the personal piece without some social support also. So they do go together. Um, so what are the symptoms that a lot of people uh, notice in their daily life? Um, insecurity, especially insecurity in our relationships. Feeling that uh, being still is unsafe. Or feeling that uh, meditation is going to lead you down into some hole where you're going to lose your mind or disintegrate. Um, meaninglessness. Um, eating disorders. Rage. Um, feeling stuck at work, I think, is a common one. And uh, um, one that probably none of you have ever done which is sabotaging relationships. <laughs> do you guys do that no. in Edmonton? <laughs> Nowadays, um, the therapy world is really obsessed with cognitive behavioral therapy and short-term therapy. And I think these kind of therapies are so amazing for working with behavior. They're really good for recognizing and transforming patterns of behavior. Um, and the great thing about them is they're not expensive. So for governments and insurance companies, they're not too expensive. But when it comes to these deeper traumatic experiences, um, they're not deep enough. Um, and I'm also going to say neither is reconciliation. That's also not enough. Um, if you tend to blame who caused your wound, um, you're always going to have this attitude of retribution. And that keeps this cycle going, you know. <clears throat> Maybe you get hit by a drunk driver, and then you put the next 10 years of your life into suing them. And then one day the court case is settled, and you win. And um, punishing the perpetrator didn't bring you any healing whatsoever. Because it can't change the internal systems that are driving the trauma. So cognitive awareness is a start. We need to know, oh, here are some of the things that have happened. Um, here's some of the problems I'm recognizing in my relationship. When I try and sit still, I last for 30 seconds and I feel like I'm going to explode. Um, or when I go to sit still, I don't feel anything and I can sit there for hours, actually. Why I think what we're doing can be healing for trauma is that you can't explore these symptoms that I'm talking about 
from a distance. You have to get really close to what it feels like uh, to feel some of this stuff. We need to slowly get to know what we carry uh, inside of our feelings. And we need skills and tools for knowing how to relate to sensations and feelings even before we try and soothe them or transform them. Or we just need a way, we need skills for how to relate to sensations. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And here's the kicker, which is the only way to relate to sensations that are pleasant or unpleasant is in the present moment. Can't relate to them outside the present moment. So when we're learning how to stay in the warrior pose for five breaths and breathe with all these new sensations and see how we want to run away, come back to our breathing, see all the stories we make up, come back. We're slowly learning how to be embodied in the present moment. And yoga teachers, this is your job. Right? Your job is to teach people how to be in feeling without jumping out of it. That's your job. Because, as I said yesterday, We've evolved to get out of pain. <laughs> We've evolved to get out of pain. But at the root of trauma is a root pain. And as long as you remain frightened of that pain, then it's going to organize your life for you. So we need... Uh, process of titration, of, of gently and safely starting to come into contact with our breathing and the body um, in order to reconnect with what's been dissociated, which is always going to be frightening, and probably nobody can do it alone. So if you think, oh yeah, I think I recognize some of this stuff in my own life, so I'm just going to go sit under a tree like the Buddha. I think that this might be naive. I don't think in any culture would anybody embark on that kind of a journey all by themselves. We need uh, help. And the thing about that help is um, when it comes to us, we're then going to try and act out the trauma in that relationship. And so we need a skilled mentor or teacher or therapist or somebody who understands what it feels like to be projected upon. Um, and yet, they're still there. So, somebody who can feel like you love them and that you can kill them. And yet, they're still there. because you're going to try and sabotage that relationship. But if the person doesn't die, like, not literally, but like, if you can't kill them, then um, some real healing is possible. 
And that's the cool thing about your breath, is that if you keep your faith in your breathing, um, uh, it won't abandon you. And when it does abandon you, you won't be here anymore. So it doesn't matter. In other words, you need uh, practice, which is everything we're doing this weekend, community, and a mentor, slash teacher, slash therapist. In uh, Buddhist practice, this is called the triple treasure. To support you so you can challenge these internal um, uh, um, survival systems that are outdated. Can that mentor be a partner? Yeah, the mentor could be totally be your partner. Yeah. Yeah, I think this happens all the time. Is sometimes we get into relationships and uh, you know real old wounds come up, and um, um, what an amazing thing when you have a partner who's like, I can take this on. I can totally meet this. Uh, because uh, what happens is, is the way it usually comes up with your partner is that you do something that pretty much is going to kill the relationship. Right? That's when this stuff usually comes up. And uh, when you're with someone who sees that and can still be there, then there's a real, uh, I mean, that's love. This is the power of love. The problem, <laughs> I keep pointing out the problems, but the problem is people who have a lot of these symptoms tend to choose people who have the same level of freedom, psychological freedom that they do. So you end up meeting the partner that kind of meets you who has those symptoms, um, and um, you enable each other, whatever way. So, um, let me just kind of sum up before we relate this to the Yoga Sutra, which is that equally critical to um, recognizing trauma is uh, knowing what shame is like, what shame feels like. Because the core of shame is in our emotional bodies and in our brains more than cognitive awareness. And that's why I think you need long-term therapy, long-term relationships, long-term friendships, long-term practices, long-term communities, um, because you need help. You need a practice that helps you wake up you need a community, and you need teachings uh, to support you, to hold you. And what we experience in, the whole, in being held is that fear gets transformed, shame gets transformed. And here's the best part, and the worst part. Which one do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news? The bad news is that uh, you never heal completely. That's the bad news. 
The bad news is uh, you'll never fully heal. It's like in Zen, there's a practice called uh, Enso practice, where you take a brush with ink on it, you put it on a piece of paper, and you take one inhale and one exhale, and you make a big circle. But the circle never quite finishes properly. There's always kind of a gap. So it's the same thing with our wounds, you know. You, they never quite heal. There's always a scar left. You know. And um, that's the bad news. You want to hear the good news? The good news is um, because of that, um, you can help people. Because uh, if you have a relationship with your own uh, woundedness, then um, you can help other people. If you have a fantasy that you can fix yourself and there will be no more wound ever, 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 you probably will have a hard time being compassionate for other people because you'll be impatient. You know, why is their addiction not gone? Why are they still drinking? So, um, one of the things that I think about having a community like this, like we are here this weekend, and having access to these teachings, uh, being encouraged to treat your relationships seriously, um, and to have a practice where you're really learning how to be in your pre-verbal experience, and especially learning how to get still and feel that everything's okay. It's called Ananda. Everything's okay. <clears throat> um, one of the benefits is um, there's some deep healing that happens um, that you won't even understand completely. And then you can use that to be present with other people who are having a hard time. It's like the best skill that you can acquire that you can't get at university. It's much more expensive than university because usually like the root is like you end up spending a lot of money on stupid things because that's what you do sometimes when you don't know what to do. Um, but when you're done with that, you, you can help people. You can really help people. And one of the things you can help people, one of the ways you can do that is you can just uh, be with people. You know what I mean by that? It's like, because uh, you know, because people have been with you. And probably the people who have helped you the most, they, they, have, they didn't even know what to do, really. <laughs> they just were able to, to be with you. So. Um, if you want to study Chinese, then uh, you should probably study with someone who is fluent in Chinese. It's just like if you want to do good backbends, you should study with someone who can do good backbends. Uh, likewise, I think that if you want to uh, heal your woundedness, in whatever way that comes, and whether you use the term trauma or whatever your vocabulary is, it's good to spend time with someone who's um, fallen apart. 
It's happening right now. I know, but it's like fascinating. And I have a friend who sought me out. We went out friends, and somehow I was chosen with this kind of issue. And I'm kind of just there. I don't really know what to say, but I'm just there. Okay. I show up on an outstanding. Yeah. And I don't do that with anybody, but. So yeah, it's a real, it, and it, yeah, and, and I hope that what I'm saying is kind of like reorienting all of us to remember that um, to be close to someone who's in that space is a privilege, actually, and that it only can happen in a genuine way if there's like a doorway open in our own heart to the fact that we're not fully healed either. Right? Yeah. And, um, and that way our work with someone else is also helping us. It is. Yeah. It's better for, for us, <laughs> actually. Like we think, oh, I'm helping them. But really, it's so good for us. It's so good for us. In your position of being a person, you're really empathetic. For me, it's not Uh-huh. Yeah, well, part of it is that you have to have a practice also. Um, and if you have a regular practice, your practice will teach you how to read your body um, to see when you're overwhelmed, you're unhelpful, your motivation is coming out of, you know, guilt or, you know, all those things. Um, can I just say a couple more things before we jump into questions and discussion? Is that, is that okay? Um, so I just wanted to end with, with a defining a term that is one of my favorite Sanskrit words. We don't have a word like this in English, which is uh, the word that's being used in this section of the Yoga Sutra, which is samskara. Uh, it's made of two uh, uh, compounds, sam, which is uh, via Latin, where you get the English word com, like community, like to come together, and uh, kata, which is from the verb kur, which it means uh, to make, which is where you get the word karma, and also it's where you get the English word create. So when you uh, um, bond those together, sangskara, uh, it means uh, to come together and make. And um, interestingly, this is also where we get the English word scar. And so basically what it means is every time there's an action, it leaves a scar. And why this is really interesting is because Every moment is a moment of activity. So even though there are scars, um, the scars can be reshaped over time. Nowadays, it's hip to call it neuroplasticity, even though no one really knows what that means. But I like the term samskara. 
Can you translate it like that? It sounds exactly like multi-generation trauma. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, in line 10, when Patanjali says, <clears throat> these samskaras help consciousness flow from one tranquil moment to the next. What's being said is, um, in moments where we can see how we're triggered, but stay calm and not reinforce the trigger, we then rework our triggers and we reshape them into moments of tranquility. And so in a way, this is really good news. At first we thought, oh my God, all of this woundedness is just like fate. But then it turns out that every moment is a moment of activity in the brain, in the body. And it can be reworked and reshaped. Not back to factory settings, <laughs> but still it can be reshaped. It can be reshaped. And not only can it be reshaped, it can never get perfect. Thank God. And because it can't, because you can't be fully healed, you can be a bodhisattva. You can be somebody motivated to connect with other people who are a mess. And actually, they don't have to be a mess in the same way you were a mess. Their symptoms don't have to be the same. But you can recognize suffering. And you know what it's like to relate to your suffering. So go help people because it's helping yourself and um, it's a privilege. Yeah. If you want to get happy, just go help people. Uh, you might not lose five pounds <laughs> and you, you might not get a better body and uh, you're still going to age and you're still going to have menstrual cramps. <laughs> and people will annoy you, and on and on and on. But um, uh, life is so much more meaningful, you know, when uh, it includes other people. So, um, let's have a discussion period for five minutes, and then we'll have a break. Does that sound reasonable?